You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. You know, one thing I'd like to say is that I've met a number of central bankers, um, not just here in the U.S., but, but around the world. But I, I, I'm interested in their thought processes. And, and the first thing that has to be said is that none of them have any, with a few exceptions, because they're kind of Austrian school guys. But, and, and, and their Austrian views, by the way, are on their own time and in their own personal opinion. The views of their bank definitely aren't. But at, at the more senior levels, there's no interest in gold. There's no understanding of it. There's no expectations around it. There's no, oh, well, we all know that we're destroying our currencies, and so we're all going to privately stock up on gold, and then when everything blows up, we're going to be the rich, fat cats. There's none of that thought process. You know, whatever you can point out that's going on with their currencies, they all have these glib answers that, as far as I can tell, they believe you know, they're smoking their own stash, I guess. This is Mining Stock Education, and I am your host, Bill Powers. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to engage the show, you can email me at bill at miningstockeducation.com. Well, silver and gold have been roaring, even as the average worker has been in their house under lockdown in much of the world, including the United States and Michigan, where I live. Yet, even as unemployment numbers are going through the roof, I'm looking at my finance app and the Dow and the S&P seem to not care that the economic engine of the United States isn't roaring uh, like it has in the past. Well, I reached out to an expert uh, when it comes to the Federal Reserve, precious metals, and the economy, Mr. Keith Weiner, actually Dr. Keith Weiner. He's the CEO and founder of Monetary Metals. You can find more information at monetary-metals.com. Keith, thanks for coming on Mining Stock Education to provide your commentary. And I'm wondering, as I look at the landscape of what's going on in the macro situation, do you think the Federal Reserve can actually save the economy? Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show. Can the Federal Reserve, which is a central planning agency, save the economy. Um, I'll give the too long don't read version, no. And, uh, uh, you know, follow that up with, um, it should be clear, and when I say clear, I mean like to a sixth grader who's, you know, at all intelligent or, or thoughtful, that in order to consume something, you first have to produce it. You know, if you go to the grocery store and you buy a can of Coke or um, a steak, right, somebody has to work to produce that. And the whole premise of having a central bank is that somehow we can boost wealth and the economy and hence consumption, um, you know, by so-called money printing. But that, that's a contradiction. That would seem to violate what any sixth grader would know. You can't. And so it turns out what the answer is, is that even if, even if you're not producing more and the central bank somehow engineers it so that you feel wealthier and you consume more, you are consuming something that was previously produced. It's just not produced by you. And so we have a term in economics for when people produce something and then they, they save and accumulate it. It's not meant for consumption right away. It's meant to ultimately enhance future production and hence increase future consumption. And that's called capital or capital goods. So the only thing the Fed can really do is find ways to engineer the conversion. And I use that word knowing that there's a legal overtone to conversion. It's like an illicit taking of property. It's, it's engineering a conversion of, of capital that belongs to somebody, converting it into income to be received by somebody else and then consumed. 
And so the Fed, um, you know, has been good at engineering that, and they've developed a whole, um, you know, they would call it toolbox. I guess maybe a better word is bag of tricks for for doing that. And um, and so that's what they do. And then people say, oh, you know, yay, the, the economy has been saved and GDP is up. But at the root of it, it's always finding a way to convert capital to income to be consumed. Keith, I was speaking with a friend who is a fiscal conservative and an investor and who believes in capitalism, but he commented to me that he thinks it would have been better for this situation if student loans would have been erased and they would have gone the path of a cancellation, cancellation of debts rather than issuance of new money. Uh, what are your thoughts here? Most people, when they talk about canceling student debts, um, are not really talking about dealing devastating blows to uh, the lenders. They're talking about the government uh, forgiving it. In which case, it isn't really canceling it. It's just shifting it from the student's balance sheet to the government's balance sheet. It's just onboarding the debt and saying, well, now the government will owe it. So, you know, it's like there's a lump under the rug. And you were all debating whether it's better to have the lump, you know, on the left side of the rug towards the TV rather than on the right side towards the sofa. And, you know, which side of the, of the rug is better for the lump? And um, when you see it that way, then you realize, wait a minute, is either side really better? Do you think the U.S. dollar will survive this crisis? Um, yeah, I think, okay, so my, my view is um, all irredeemable currencies are guaranteed to collapse in the end. And people use the word fiat. Fiat means force. And yes, you know, these, this is a fiat currency. But economically, what's important about it is that it's irredeemable. And so what irredeemable means is that you can't uh, go to the bank with your $20 bill and, and cash it in and get money out. The, 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 the note, which is the word for credit, stands for itself and isn't redeemable anymore. So we pay debts using this IOU, using this debt. And so um, you can never extinguish a debt, and that means the debt must grow exponentially. It must grow every year by the accumulated interest. And so at the end of the day, the, the debt is growing faster and faster and faster, and at some point it consumes everything. So in the, in the 2016, uh, in the lead up to the 2016 election, I said, assuming that Trump is in office for eight years, they'll call him 20 trillion Trump. Um, and, and that would be true for, for anybody in office, by the way. It's not a particular criticism of him, although he seems to embrace it with abandon, um, but that the debt is doubling about every years, uh, about every eight years. And so um, we now see with you know, a baseline deficit of the 12 months ending March 31 of about $1.7 trillion. That's the baseline. And there's a, there's a great website put out by the U.S. Treasury called Debt to the Penny that you can put in whatever dates you want, and I'll show you the, um, the debt every day. So a baseline deficit of 1.7 trillion. Then they passed the CARES Act, which is another 2.3 trillion of spending on top of that. Then there was a supplement to the CARES Act. I don't even know what they called it, but it was half a trillion. So we're at four and a half trillion dollars of deficit. And that's assuming that they don't do any more, which everyone knows they will. Um, and no one's asking the question yet how much tax revenues have dropped. Um, and I, let's estimate a trillion dollars. So we're looking at a five and a half trillion dollar deficit uh, before they spend any more, which they will. And so obviously that's not hard to add up to 20 trillion in eight years if you're doing five and a half trillion a year. So absolutely all, all these paper currencies are gonna come to an end. That said, um, they come to an end when 
uh, I think it was Margaret Thatcher who said the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. So this this process of what people call money printing, which I call borrowing, is a process of consuming other people's capital, and and the and the system and or the whole thing collapses when you run out of other people's capital. Um, so in the United States, um, we're not running out of capital yet. And because the way the world's monetary system is wired, people in the rest of the world are eagerly putting their capital into US dollars. They're, they're, they don't understand this in these terms, of course, but they're donating their capital to continue it. And so what's going to happen is all the other currencies will fail first, and then the US dollar will fail in the end. So I don't think the current crisis is the failure of the US dollar. Um, but at this point, I would start to look at peripheral currencies um, for you know for signs of failure, um, there's no question that what's what's happened, and I'm specifically I mean the response to the virus, uh, has been enormously destructive. Um, but I don't think the dollar comes to an end just yet. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Orn Resources is a junior exploration company with the appetite of a major, focused on finding the next globally significant discovery to create enormous potential upside for shareholders. It's one of the most aggressive exploration companies pursuing high-grade, scalable gold and copper deposits and has a premier seven-project portfolio including its two flagships, Committee Bay in the Arctic and Sombrero in Peru. With Orin's unparalleled technical team and highly experienced management with a history of success in advancing and monetizing exploration assets, Orin has been called one of the best in the junior exploration sector. Orin trades on the TSX and NYSE under the ticker AUG. To learn more, go to orinresources.com. That's A-U-R-Y-N resources.com. As you know, there's been a lot of talk in the precious metals community over the years of the stockpiling of gold with Russia and China, and perhaps the BRICS nations are plotting to overthrow the dollar. So I take it you don't think that'll happen because you said all the other currencies will fall first and then the U.S. dollar falls? Well, that, yes. And, and part of the reason why I say that is all the other currencies are dollar derivatives anyway. So, you know, it's like saying that, um, you know, a call option on Google would survive the collapse of Google stock. I mean, how could, how could that even be possible? If the Google stock collapsed, the, the call option would collapse long before that. So, um, But if another nation converts their currency into physical gold, would that change the landscape? It's that, let me try to take a step back and answer that a different way. By looking at, as, as the world came out of the Middle Ages, um, banking started to develop and, and, and banking and credit was a key force that enabled us to climb out of a very dark period of history. Um, what, what banking you know, did was it, it asked people to extend trust, and trust is the, is the key component of credit. The, the bank said, okay, you know, give us your gold, and on your behalf, you know, we're going to lend it, and, um, you know, and, 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 and in so doing, enable increases in production, so everybody becomes better off as we start to finance, or they started to finance things. And of course, the depositor um, would get interest on it, or in, in the least case, they would they would get paper banknotes that were more convenient to handle and carry and weren't subject to wear and tear and had you know convenient denominations, you know, one, two, five, ten, twenty. Um, so it's it's a people bringing their money to the bank and giving, you know, extending trust and getting credit. And and that has to be an organic process. Um, 
So what governments did um, in some cases in the 19th century and other cases in the 20th century, and obviously it's very well understood what in America what the Fed did and, and what FDR did, President Roosevelt in 1933 said, okay, we're taking all the gold away from everybody and we're making the dollar, which had been a claim to gold deposited, we're making the dollar now a claim against nothing. The dollar isn't anything anymore. It stands for itself. It's a self-referential, you know, circular uh, argument. Um, and the, but the trust and the credit was still there. Everybody was trapped in it, but they didn't have any reason to lose faith in it, uh, obviously, and they didn't in the 1930s, 1940s, and so on. But today, all of these currencies are pure irredeemable. They don't represent that extension of um, uh, of gold credit. You can't retroactively declare, okay, well, from now on, a dollar is, um, you know, $2,000 represents one ounce of gold or $1,000 or $5,000, name whatever number you could. You can't retroactively declare the dollar to be redeemable in that because no dollar began its life as the borrowing of that. And so all that would do would be a retroactive change of the rules of the game. Um, so first of all, it would be a giant lobbying battle with all the creditors lining up on the one side demanding a low price of gold, just counterintuitive. But think about that for a minute. If you owe me $1,000 and I lobby the government and say that the gold redemption value should be back at its historic level at $20 an ounce, then that means you have to pay me 50 ounces to get out of debt, which is an enormous sum and obviously a lot more than the $1,000 you thought you were borrowing in the first place. On the other hand, all the debtors line up and say, no, 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 the price of gold should be $100,000. So then you can give me um, one one-hundredth of an ounce, which is a little fleck of gold, you know, smaller than your uh, pinky fingernail. Um, so that, that, that would be the first problem with it. But the second problem is when governments try to engage in a price-fixing scheme, and that's what this becomes, that just fixing a price, the dollar isn't gold, it isn't a gold credit at something else, it's it's a price fixing scheme. And so when you get the price wrong, depending on in which direction your error lies, you get either um, you know crazy amounts of deposits, as everyone says, you, wait, really, you're gonna give me $100,000 for every ounce of gold? And now I can go out and I can go shopping and I can buy Ferraris, I can buy a Ferrari for three ounces of gold, great. Or if you set it in the other direction, you say, well, it's you know $200, what you just get is a run on the bank and everybody will Will, will withdraw. And so um, well, that becomes particularly dangerous because the value of the dollar in gold terms is not only falling over the long term, that's uncontroversial, everyone can see that on a graph, but um, it's nonlinear and it's unstable. And when it gets to a certain point, it will begin, the dollar will begin collapsing against gold, not against consumer prices necessarily, but against gold. And whatever price they fixed for gold when the dollar begins to fall way below that, you'll just get this enormous run, which is what was happening in 1933 in the first place. Um, and then they're gonna have to abandon their peg. So it just becomes like the Banana Republic banks declare a peg against the dollar, and it lasts only for as long until the market really wants to test it, and then they're forced to abandon. So no, I, don't, I don't think any of these governments can um, just declare a gold peg. So then do you not subscribe to Jim Rickard's theory of $10,000 gold and how this might play out? Well, I think it's a matter of time before the price of gold hits you know, 10000 and more as, as the paper currencies collapse. 
the, and the dollar collapses, it will be worth less than one ten thousandth of an ounce of gold at some point. But not not because you know a bunch of countries are getting together to plot anything. Um, you know, one thing I'd like to say is that I've met a number of central bankers, um, not just here in the U.S. but but around the world, and I and I try to keep lines of communication with them open where that's possible, and, and they know my work, and they either agree or disagree. But I, I, I'm interested in their thought processes. And, and the first thing that has to be said is that none of them have any, with a few exceptions, because they're kind of Austrian school guys, um, but, and, and, and their Austrian views, by the way, are on their own time and in their own personal opinion. The views of their banks definitely aren't. But at, at the more senior levels, there's no interest in gold. There's no understanding of it. There's no expectations around it. There's no, oh, well, we all know that we're destroying our currencies, and so we're all going to privately stock up on gold, and then when everything blows up, we're going to be the rich, fat cats. There's none of that thought process. You know, whatever you can point out that's going on with their currencies, they all have these glib answers that, as far as I can tell, they believe, you know, they're smoking their own stash, I guess. Masters of the universe? Not even so much that, but more like technocrat, um, you know, dirigists that, you know, we have this formula, we have this incantation, you know, it's Eye of Newt and the Midsummer's Eve, and, you know, when we, we have a Taylor formula and we have this equation and it tells us that, you know, we have to increase the money supply by this to get the inflation rate here and inflation trades off against unemployment according to the Phillips curve. And, you know, they have all these rituals they go through. And um, you can point out certain things and, it, if it doesn't fit their theory, it, it, it doesn't exist in their world. And, and, and one of these things is that everybody's understood, or at least I shouldn't say everybody, the economics world was aware that the price level does not correlate with the quantity of money. It correlates with the interest rate. And this goes back to, to work by Newt Wicksell in the 1890s, who, by the way, was a monetarist and believed in the quantity theory of money. But he did the research and he was careful enough and he found the relationship didn't work the way he thought it did. And then later, they called it Gibson's paradox. Um, why do they call it a paradox? It's pretty simple. There's nothing paradox about, paradoxical about it at all. But um, and I, I, just, I just use this as an example of when something challenges somebody's mental paradigm, they reject the thing that challenges it rather than their paradigm itself. And the central bankers just don't have any particular view on gold other than they might have a directional price view. They might think gold's going to go up, and so then they buy it like anybody else buys it, and for the same reason, it's a, you know they think of it as an investment. Um, and of course, in Russia, you know they had an additional incentive, which was for a while it looked like politically what they were doing in the Ukraine might result in the U.S. locking them entirely out of the, you know, SWIFT uh, banking system. And so that, you know, like Iran is locked out, and so for Iran it's very difficult to make payments or receive payments in the world markets. And so, you know, there might have been some thought, okay, well, we have to have gold because we can always put gold on a plane and pay for anything we want. But it wasn't a ideological thing, and it wasn't a monetary thing, it was just simply, that's the practical reality of invading Ukraine, pissing off the United States, and okay, well, this is how we're gonna work around whatever they do to make our life more difficult. Keith, how does oil factor into all this? Oil is often referred to as black gold when we're talking about the currencies of these nations and how it's related to gold. How do you see oil related to the currencies of all these nations? So, um, you know, in terms of Russia, 
you know, Russia was a net buyer of gold as long as the price of oil was holding up. And when the price of oil went to its, you know, I have to call it an epic collapse. There's been two epic collapses of, of oil, one in, in 2014 to 2015 and one uh, in 2020. Um, you know, Russia becomes a net seller of gold, or at least not a buyer, because they don't have the income anymore. And they may even have to liquidate that gold in order to keep feeding the people. If you can't feed the people in a, you know, in an authoritarian regime like that, then you have regime change. And I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, Putin must be, you know, thinking about that. But um, more broadly, oil and gold, you know, something happened um, a couple, three weeks ago uh, and I wrote about this at the time, the price of oil went negative. Um, and so it's kind of a weird anomaly with the futures market. But in short, we've had all of this stimulus over the past 10 years, uh, 12 years, right, since you know, 2008, uh, 11, 11 and a half years, I guess, um, in the form of, of low, low zero and falling interest rates. And what that does is it overstimulates overcapacity. You know, if you're if you're a business manager, let's say you're in the oil business, but at, at, whether the hamburger business, clothing business, or the computer business, it's always the same calculus. You always think, okay, I could build another factory and increase production, and okay, how much am I going to make if I do that? And you have your numbers and you plug them in, and then it always comes down to cost of capital. So every time that the central bank is lowering the cost of capital, it's tilting the equation more and more and more in favor of increasing capacity. So. That's what we did. Um, we overstimulated overcapacity in oil, particularly in fracking, and um, we produced more and more and more of this oil. Okay, great, consumers love it. We can drive you know, big gas guzzling SUVs and all that. Um, and, and, I, and I don't complain about that. I drive a Corvette Z06, so uh, uh, it's got a big gate in it, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the, the price of oil, you lock down the world, and you say that so far, 33 and a half million Americans can no longer be employed, so they're not driving to work. Most of the rest of the people who are employed aren't driving to work either, they're working from home. And you can't drive to the sports game, you can't drive to the concert, you can't drive to the restaurant, you can't even drive to weddings, you know, visit friends, et cetera. So, um, you know, driving and, and tra you know, travel has collapsed. I mean, airlines are, airline travel is down, you know, 90%, I don't know what it is, it's gotta be huge. So we're burning less oil, right? That's just a consequence of lockdown. So all of a sudden, you have a situation where the oil has continued to be produced. Um, that oil was all bought long ago on futures contracts, and now that when it comes to delivery time, this is that technical thing in the futures market. If people want to speculate in oil, unless you have a giant tank somewhere, you got to do it in the futures market. So you buy a futures contract, and you think, okay, well. You know, if the price of oil goes down, I lose. If it goes up, I win. I can always sell it. I'll cash settle my futures contract because I don't have a, 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 a truck that can take a thousand barrels or, you know, 40, what is it, 40,000 gallons of oil. I can't take delivery of that. So all that oil, all those speculators who own the oil futures contracts have to sell. And meanwhile, more and more oil keeps flowing through the pipeline. And but demand has collapsed. And so it, it got to the point on one day, I don't remember what day that was now, about three weeks ago, I think, um, when the price of the June futures contract hit minus $38. You had to pay somebody to take the oil. And whatever else one might say comparing oil to gold, there will never, ever, ever be a situation in which you have to pay somebody to take your gold. <laughs> but 
it did just occur in oil and as we see as with for different reasons what what, we, what the government has done to the supply chain in meat the uh, ranchers and farmers are, are now being forced to destroy animals and so effectively there's a negative price and an animal keeps eating so there's a negative value on meat there's a negative value on oil at least there was that day so all these other commodities never gold and silver but other commodities um, we find there can be under the right circumstances um, a negative you know, value to it. Keith, your website is called Monetary Metals. Uh, what metals do you consider monetary? Gold and silver. Not palladium or platinum? No, uh, which are, I mean, they're expensive um, industrial ingredients. Maybe they're pretty and maybe people like them and, and you know, that's not really the argument. But money is, is money because of what's called a high stocks to flows ratio. That is, in the case of gold, the, the case is the most obvious and clear. We've accumulated virtually all of the gold ever mined in human history is still in somebody's hands. I mean, a little bit is, is, is worn away as the coins rub in people's pockets. Some of it's lost when you know ships sink. Uh, some of it was buried with people who had gold teeth, although the grave robbers usually recover that eventually. Um, so, you know, all the gold over maybe 5,000 years of human history um, is still in human hands. And so that amount of gold as a total stocks is a giant multiple of uh, you know, annual mine production. So according to the World Gold Council, what is it, 180,000 tons of gold is the total stock, something like that, which I think has to be a big underestimate because you can't inventory it because people have been hiding gold from their neighbors and their governments for 5,000 years. Um, and you can divide that by annual mine production of you know, 3,000 tons or something like that. And you end up with, according to, according to that estimate, which I think is low, stocks of flows in gold is 60 years. And oil is a couple, three, four months. And anything more than that, the price goes negative. And so um, gold and silver both have this enormous accumulation of inventories that has occurred over many, many thousands of years. And um, no other metal is, is remotely, or no other commodity for that matter, is remotely close to that. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Silver One Resources is an exploration and development company backed by strategic investors Eric Sprott and SSR Mining. At Silver One's Candelaria Mine Project in Nevada, there is already a historic resource estimated at 127 million ounces of silver, which Silver One is developing and advancing. The company's Phoenix Silver Project, located within the Arizona Silver Belt, is an early stage exploration project on which native silver vein fragments have been discovered surface. One grab sample assayed an astounding 14,688 ounces per ton. Yes, that's right. Ounces, not grams. Silver One has tremendous exploration potential, is extremely leveraged to the price of silver, and is cashed up and poised to increase shareholder value. Silver One trades in New York under the ticker SLVRF and in Toronto under the ticker SVE. To learn more, go to SilverOne.com. That's SilverOne.com. One question on silver before I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit more about what monetary metals offers. When do you expect silver to really start performing like a monetary metal? Because right now it seems like it may be hinting like it's going to perform as a monetary metal in this crisis, but I think that it's primarily been performing as an industrial metal. Yeah, and, and uh, I agree with that. And uh, obviously the industrial component of silver has collapsed along with you know, oil and everything else, um, but the monetary hasn't. But 
I, I think you have to look at the question, why are there two monetary medals? Markets tend to be winner take all. Um, you know, I, being coming from the technology business myself, I always look at early technology um, contests. And so when, when computer networks started to become a bigger thing, you had so many different kinds of networks. You had Token Ring from IBM, you had Ethernet, you know, and so forth. And at the end of the day, TCP IP won, and everything else was obliterated. But we have two monetary medals, and they've survived for, as far as we know, you know, 5,000 years, something like that. Um, why did one not displace the other? And I think the answer is they serve slightly different markets and slightly different purposes. So gold obviously has always been, as they say, the money of kings, wealthy gentlemen, you know, big merchants and so forth. Gold solves the problem of how to carry value over great distances. And so today, the reason why um, you know, gold is so liquid is you can put it on a plane from anywhere in the world to anywhere else in the world and get it there in less than 24 hours. And that's, you know, settlement in the gold industry is T plus one or T plus two any, anyways. So if there's a relative shortage in Dubai and a relative surplus in um, New York City, it gets on a plane and it goes. Silver, on the other hand, um, serves the purpose of carrying value over great amounts of time, and particularly for wage earners. So if you are working for wages in a skilled labor kind of thing, and you want to set aside 10% of your weekly wage, that might be $50 or $80 or something like that. Um, that's not terribly convenient in gold. It doesn't give you like a handful of gold. It gives you a very small fleck of it. And it's an inefficient way to do it because you pay big premiums for tiny little pieces of gold like that. I mean, you can buy a one gram bar uh, fleck or whatever you want to call it, wafer, I guess, um, for about that much money. It's not much to hold. It's not, it doesn't feel exciting. And there's a big premium in the manufacturing of something that small. Silver, on the other hand, you know, 50 or $80 of silver is a handful of, of silver rounds or silver coins. So silver tended to be um, accumulated and hoarded by wage earners, and gold tended to be, um, you know, by the, by the capital-owning class. Well, if you look at what's going on in the world today, the wage earner is under ever greater pressure, and that's a topic I've been writing about for, for a decade or so. Um, and, the, and the class that owns capital assets is enjoying um, at least for now, the, the boost provided by the Fed. And so um, the, the wage earner may be forced to, not only isn't able to buy more when he loses his job, he may be forced to sell to put food on the table. And the, the capital class right now is feeling pretty smug with, you know, it was a dip in the stock market, but things seem to be recovering as far as they're concerned. And so that's why you see these two metals performing very differently. And of course we've hit, as far as I know, an all-time record the world has never seen before of a gold to silver ratio of you know well over 110, briefly touched 120. Um, I think that will turn around, um, and I think that ultimately even institutional investors who normally turn their nose up at silver um, are, are turning to silver in some cases because they see the relative bargain as to when. Uh, you know that's a bit of a guess. And as listeners go over to monetary-metals.com, uh, what does that have to offer? We pay interest on gold and silver. So, you know, the mainstream view is that, you know, you buy gold or silver, it's a dry asset, but its price will probably go up. Um, and certainly in this environment, I, I think it's realistic to expect the price will go up. Um, but it's a dry asset that isn't doing anything and you're paying for storage in the meantime. Um, we 
want to bring about the gold standard, first of all, and we're pretty open about that. And we believe that to do so, it has to be possible for everybody who wants to, to earn interest on their, on their metal. And we see the monetary metals as the appropriate and, and best means of financing productive activities. So um, we are open to the public to deposit metal and get a return on it of uh, you know between two and four and a half percent. And that's metal on metal. So if you have 100 ounces of metal and the interest rate is 3%, the next year you have 103 ounces. Did you ever propose that to Warren Buffett? Because, you know, that's one of his objections for not investing in gold. Um, I don't happen to be privileged to be in his inner circle to <laughs> suggest that to him face to face. We did write an open letter to Warren Buffett and we talked about that. Um, and, uh, you know, whether he's read it or not, who knows. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's an idea that if this was pre-2008, it would have been the wrong time. And I don't think we could have been successful in this business. Um, you know, post, post that world, um, you know, the, the perception of the precious metals has changed and it's, it's, it's a sea change. It, you know, people don't think the way they did in, in 2007. And now post coronavirus, we see a big uptick in interest in this stuff. And just like in 2008, 2009, a whole bunch of people came as first time buyers to gold who never had it before. There's a whole nother round of first time buyers in 2020 as more people are, uh, you know, dare I use the term, waking up. And, and you know, I, I mean, I think if you're, if you're a mainstream conventional person, there's two things you can see that don't require any doom and gloom or, or gold bug kind of stuff. And one is the size of the federal deficit. It just can't feel good to be, you know, an owner of their credit paper when you see that kind of abuse. It just has to be uneasy to anybody, no matter how Warren Buffett you are, you have to feel uneasy about that. And then number two, the interest rate, which is your reward for taking, so the risk is going up with, with all that borrowing, but the interest rate, which is your reward for that, has collapsed. And so in, in um, fall of 2018, you could get 3.2% on a 10-year treasury bond. That's a pretty good deal. Uh, but you know, and, and this winter, as recently as this winter, it was 1.8%, which is still something. And then in March, it collapsed to 0.5%. And now it's been banging around on that, you know, new floor. So, you know, was it 0.6% today or something, or 0.7? Um, they've taken away the reward at the same time they've amped up the risk. And I think, I think a lot of people can see that. And as they start to ask themselves the question that everybody has to ask before they start buying gold, What's my way out? Can I opt out of this? This is madness. And then gold comes to mind. So we're saying, okay, if gold is money, which we believe it is, money should earn interest. Warren Buffett is right, disingenuous, obviously, in, in the way he was trying to frame it, but he's right that money should earn interest. And so that's our unique selling proposition, that's our vision um, to, to bring about a change for the better, a change to the gold standard by making it profitable for investors to move us in that direction. And I'll put a link to Monetary Metals in the show notes. Website again is monetary-metals.com. You've been listening to the CEO and founder, Keith Weiner. Keith, I really appreciate your insights on the economy, Federal Reserve, gold, and everything that's going on. Thank you for joining me on today's show. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly the mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.